0: Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch subject to credit approval. Terms apply. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores, June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
2: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
1: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day, Canada. The next day, Thailand. Then, New York. London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Syracuse, and in particular, the restored Hotel Syracuse, now Marriott, right here in downtown Syracuse. And... uh, What's amazing about this hotel and about this district is how much one building can start turning a place around. When you walk into the lobby and you see the work that they've done, it's a $76 million restoration. I mean, it's like, that's a lot of money. And and it shows. And uh, it's nice to see that uh, the wrecking ball didn't have to come in. And it's nice to see that uh, it, uh, and when you, when you do a hotel like that, and we'll, we'll be talking a little later about the hotel, but when you do a hotel like that, it's amazing what it does, it's sort of like the rising tide that lifts all boats, uh, and it's nice to see that happening right here in Syracuse. You know, earlier in the year when we were celebrating, I talked about earlier last year, you know, the 100th anniversary of the national parks, and, and most people had no idea how many there were. If you added up the number of parks and monuments, um, it's, it's amazing how many there are that nobody even knows about. Yeah, they know Yellowstone, they they know Yosemite, they might know Acadia if they're hanging out in Maine, they might know, you know, the Smoky Mountains. But uh, my next guest uh, has a couple of secrets to share because he comes from uh, the Fort Stanwix National Monument, bet you don't know where that is, and the Harriet Tubman Monument. And his name is uh, Frank Barrows, he's the superintendent. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, thanks for having me. And you wore the badge, too, I love it. So you heard my introduction about how and I never get the number right. I used to think it was like 394, something like that, National Monuments and Parks, and I'm probably I'm probably low.
0: It's over 400. As so, I said, I'm
1: probably uh, low. Thanks, Frank. And
0: <laughs> Harriet Tubman National Historical Park was just established last week as number 414,
1: which is why I wasn't getting the numbers right, okay? Yeah. But let's first of all talk about Fort Stanwix because that's not far from where we were in Utica not too long ago.
0: Yeah, Fort Stanwix is in Rome, New York. It's a battlefield and archaeological site significant for the roles that it played in the French and Indian War and the American Revolution. And now the Harriet Tubman Memorial, that's gotta have special meaning. Absolutely. Uh, certainly in, in today she's re- is as relevant as ever. Um, it's a divided nation that we we live in and people like Harriet Tubman who fought for a cause, we can find inspiration in looking at our history and our historical figures. And it's well,
1: well, to put this in perspective, for those of people who haven't done their homework and haven't done their research, she was really, I hate to say the queen, but she was the, the big mover of the Underground Railroad.
0: Yeah, she, she helped about, our, our best guess is around 70 people escape from the South, and, you know, human brains are wired for self-preservation, and she just didn't have that. She went to the South over and over, uh, especially to help free her friends and family in, in Maryland. I mean, she took huge risks. Oh, yeah. Um, the the risks were, were huge. You know, she, she could face anything from death to a, a slave catcher catching her and being sold deeper into the South and never seeing her family again. Um, I'm a father of two young boys. I can't imagine making a decision to leave them in the hopes that I might see them. Uh, or never see them. Or never see them again. Exactly.
1: And... It's nice to be able to celebrate American history with a monument that
0: tells that story. Absolutely, and um, I should say there's two sites dedicated to Tubman. Um, To learn about her early life, you can visit her site um, down near Cambridge, Maryland. There's a a national park dedicated to Harriet Tubman. And this new site in Auburn, I think, will expose people to a site of Harriet Tubman they might not know. Because it's about her life as a free person and her involvement in her community and how she continued to dedicate herself to serving others.
1: Now, you mentioned Auburn. Tell me if I'm crazy, but isn't that America's oldest prison?
0: I'm, I can't tell you for, I think for it is. sure. I if think it, it is. It's, it's probably up there, though.
1: Yeah, it is. But let's give me a sense of, of a real distance here. How long was that Underground Railroad? We call it the railroad, but you know what I'm saying. How many miles are we really talking about in terms of
0: getting people out? Well, it was really a a loose network of assistance. I think there's this misconception that the Underground Railroad was this highly organized um, system of conductors and safe havens for people. But more often than not, it was people like Harriet Tubman who were facing an imminent threat, who decided to emancipate themselves and find help along the way. So, um, you know... it was different in different areas, in places like New Bedford, where I worked at New Bedford Whaling National Historical Park, where Frederick Douglass escaped. A lot of those slaves escaped by vessel. Um, but coming from the south, from, from Maryland, uh, as Tubman did, who stopped briefly in Philadelphia and eventually lived in, in Canada for a while before settling in Auburn, it was, it was quite the journey. And she escaped. She did. Yeah. She did. She escaped on her own. Amazing. And she's buried in Auburn. Yes, she's buried at the Fort Hill Cemetery. And one thing that I'd I'd like the listeners to know is that although this park was just established last week, there is plenty you can do now. Um, Our partners at the Harriet Tubman House, Harriet Tubman Home, Inc. uh, run a couple of sites there. They run the Harriet Tubman Home, the Home for the Aged that she established to care for uh, elderly African-American men and women. And they have a visitor center. And think
1: about, put this in some historical perspective, in the age that she did that, how difficult that was to do.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the fact that she even owned property um, that was sold to her by um, William Seward, who was the governor and- Seward's Folly. Yes, the governor and secretary of state, which is another site in Auburn. You can visit the Seward home, which is a National Historic Landmark, part of the Underground Railroad Network to Freedom. Um, it was certainly unprecedented for someone who escaped slavery to own property at that time.
1: We're talking to Frank Barrows, the superintendent of the Fort Stanwix National Monument, and he's overseeing the Harriet Tubman Memorial or the mon- monument. Is there a website?
0: We do have a website, www.nps.gov/slash H-A-R-T, and our partners who run the site um, at harriethouse.org. And rumor has it, she's going on a pizza currency. Absolutely, um, and in 2020, uh, we're going to see Harriet Tubman, hopefully, on the $20 bill. Replacing a certain president? Yep, replacing Andrew Jackson, and I think, you know, just as national parks, you, you mentioned the centennial earlier, and national parks want to reflect the diversity in the, of the nation and the stories we tell and the places that we preserve, and I think it's time our national symbols uh, also reflect the diversity of our nation, so I think it's a fantastic thing. It is and 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 hopefully precedent setting. I hope so.
3: Total. I have a
1: feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. solve when you come to Syracuse, if you're at all interested, and believe me, you should be, is history. Uh, You get to solve uh, the fact that central New York has so much history. Uh, Many things that we celebrate today hung out here first, and people don't realize that. And joining me now is somebody who does realize that, Philip Arnold, who's the uh, director of the Scano Great Law of Peace Center. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, explain Scano.
4: Scano. Uh, it's an ancient principle of the, what, what we know them as the Iroquois, but they know they call themselves the Haudenosaunee, and it's a confederation of five. How, how many five? Yeah, right. Five separate nations.
1: And that's the Iroquois Compact.
4: That's the Iroquois Confederacy, yeah. and um, now they're six nations uh, since the 18th century, but um, they have uh, organized themselves around this principle of Skano. Uh, when they greet one another in the day, during the day, they say, en ha skano. it means, thank you for being well. But skano itself means peace, but uh, peace that comes when human but me, beings. But let me
1: say, thank you for being well. We, know we we have a definition of the word well we need to talk about. Right. Because it's not well, it's well-being and wellness.
4: right. right. It's not, it
1: has nothing to do with being sick or being well. It has to do with wellness, correct? It's right. their it's their real approach to wellness.
4: Right. So wellness is a is a principal component of peace. So you can't be at peace if you're not well. Uh, and wellness has to do when human beings are in proper relationship to the world around them, the natural world. So this principle of Scano is a very deep idea about what peace is, um, and. And it comes out of Onondaga Lake um, over 1,000 years ago, this principle of peace. So we translate it into the great law of peace, but it, it's a real complicated uh, value system. Yeah.
1: And yet people don't really know that history, do they?
4: No. No, and they should, um, um, because uh, what came out of the lake was the confederation of the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois confederacy, Uh, over a thousand years ago, and the story is really long, but um, you can learn about that at the Scano Center. Uh, But But of course, as
1: we like to say, if you don't apply the lessons, there's no point in learning them.
4: Right, right. And um, the the, the Iroquois uh, or the Haudenosaunee, they influenced the founding fathers back in the 18th century. How? Um, Well, they sat in council with Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. They were they visited Philadelphia so often that they were given a plot of land near Independence Hall at, where they would sit and talk to the founding fathers about principles of organization, how we should organize ourselves in separate but equal. Well, that kind is certainly not a history that I grew up learning.
1: No. Because we, were, we learned that the, the founding fathers is their deal to begin with.
4: Right, right. But right? it was this out of this relationship between the Haudenosaunee and the Founding Fathers that some inspirations, we'll say, uh, about democracy came into being. And we learn about it's an ancient Greek system and, you know, Magna Carta, something like that. But, but in actual fact, you know, many of those ideas that inspired the Founding Fathers came from Onondaga Lake right here in Syracuse. So... Um, so it's probably the most important story that nobody's ever heard in the United States. It's not in many textbooks, that's for sure. What's the,
1: I suppose, the most enduring story that comes out of that?
4: Um, the the most enduring would have to be the, the story of the five arrows. So um, there was an Onondaga chief, and we're in Onondaga Nation territory, an Onondaga chief sitting in council with many of the founding fathers, took uh, an arrow um, and broke it quite easily. And he said, when you're alone, when you're an individual, you're easily broken. But if you take arrows from each of the five fires and you tie that, that bundle...
0: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger.
1: The word's broken arrow. Is that Mm -hmm. where it came from?
4: Yeah. Um, Broken arrow, also the idea that in unity, we have strength. And that's depicted in the presidential seal on all of our money. Uh, in the talon of the eagle is a bundle of 13 arrows. So that story is continually uh, reproduced, you could say, in our, mo- in our money. Uh, there was a, a, a coin that was minted in 2000 commemorating the influence of the Haudenosaunee on American democracy. So it's not it's not new, it's not. But they something weren't that's given but at
1: the time uh, because either the, the, the revisionist history books didn't give them credit,
4: right. right,
1: right, and they didn't get it,
4: right. And I think that you know there's always been this difficulty between immigrant people in the United States and the indigenous people that are already here, but I think. You know, over all those long centuries, there there were a variety of interactions, you know, a variety of relationships that were developed that we don't really celebrate as we should, I think.
1: You know, I'm getting very angry at my elementary, junior, and high school education because as I get older and start doing my own independent research and reading, I get angry because, you know, what do we celebrate every October? Columbus Day right right this great hero who supposedly discovered america he raped and pillaged right this guy was a bad as one presidential candidate once said he's a bad hombre right um i mean this guy was was vicious and we still sell we have a parade Mm -hmm. and and, and american kids growing up in american schools reading american textbooks have a completely different view of who this guy was
4: right right and and that's always been a bewildering to me. We'll put it that way. Why we have um, someone who was never here in the United States, who was clearly lost till the day he died. Why is he our national hero, uh, when you know clearly the the peacemaker or someone else part of the the Haudenosaunee story had much more to do uh, over a thousand years ago with who we are now. Um, now the Haudenosaunee were also matrilineal; that is, women, and they still are, uh, raise leaders into male leaders into um, their positions of leadership. Um,
1: Again, not getting the credit,
4: right? And so, also the influence uh, they influenced the development of the women's movement, which we're celebrating the hundredth year of in twenty twenty.
1: You're talking about the original suffragettes,
4: yeah, yeah. Um, so they also were influenced by. Haudenosaunee women and their role in society. And so that's another story that has largely been ignored.
1: Has anybody done, even maybe through your center, any significant research on the individual uh, either partnerships or relationships, let's say, that Benjamin Franklin had with one of of the Indians?
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, A variety of people have done that. Of course, all of the texts are written from the point of view of the founding fathers, so oftentimes those important details fall yeah, no out. Yeah, kidding. Yeah. So, but we do have wampum belts uh, from the Haudenosaunee side. They record their history in some way. Um, they're, uh these are ceremonial belts, but they're also encode the the value system of the Haudenosaunee. In fact, George Washington made a wampum belt to cement a relationship between him, between the United States and the Haudenosaunee in 1794. So as, a, as a symbolic gift? Right. Well, it was part of a, a treaty. So he wrote the treaty and also gave them the wampum belt in exchange. So Onondaga Nation right here in Syracuse still has that wampum belt, and I've seen it. It's quite impressive. And I um, and it's quite moving when you see it and, and know that George Washington had this commissioned to, to acknowledge that relationship with the Haudenosaunee.
1: Well, it was a sign of respect.
4: Yes, it was. At that point, it was. Uh, it wasn't always a respectful relationship, put it that way. But, but it evolved into but one. But it, it evolved into one. And that treaty, called the Canandaigua Treaty, is probably the most important Native American treaty uh, in the country today.
1: And then, of course, there's lacrosse.
4: Of course, lacrosse. (laughs) Lacrosse comes out of the Haudenosaunee as well. And lacrosse is a very, very important game ceremonially, cosmologically. They still play um, a ceremonial version of lacrosse. Um, But we are really in the hotbed of in the center of lacrosse right now. So
1: the birthplace of it,
4: the birthplace all that also comes out of the lake. One of the first things they did when they cemented the peace between the five original nations was play a game of lacrosse in order to celebrate that.
0: Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go.
1: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I tend to get the same picture here in Syracuse that people don't really understand uh, all the things that Central New York has to offer. Uh, and, and my next guest knows a little bit about that because he's the author of the soul of Central New York. Uh, his name is Sean Kirst. How are you, man? Good. It's good to be here, man. I mean, you, know, you guys, you know, you're, you're very much like me. We're, we're print journalists. Uh, Absolutely. Going back to the days of the Buffalo News and, and everything else, right? Right. Post-standard. Exactly. Uh, you're a local boy?
5: I'm originally from Dunkirk. It's a little industrial city. And, uh, but you're a New Yorker. I'm a upstate New York. Okay,
1: I'll speak yeah. more slowly. I'm kidding. No.
5: <laughs> no, but
1: but the bottom line is, you know, people who... They might know Syracuse because of the university, the Orange men, yes, the basketball team. Not so much the football team, but the basketball team. Right. Uh, they might know it because um, of Newhouse, you know, the School of Journalism, right? They know that absolutely. But Syracuse as a city, uh, they might even relate it a little bit to the Erie Canal. They might, right, right. But there is so much more.
5: The greatest historical story in this town, or cultural story, is that the uh, Six Nations were born here on the shoreline of Onondaga Lake. I the mean, Six Indian Nations. Yes, absolutely. The Iroquois. The Iroquois uh, Compact. no, Yes, yes. Yeah. It happened here in uh, in Syracuse on the shoreline. The, sort of the formation of their entire system of belief. It's a pretty. It's almost like their Jerusalem.
1: You know? know, I'm I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but if you mention Indians in New York these days, people just want to talk about casinos. You know, they don't understand the, the real deep history here.
5: Uh, the Onondagas, yeah. who, who are the, uh, you know, the, the fire keepers, the people who were here before anybody, are still on a piece of land south of Syracuse that's never left their hands, and they don't believe in casino gambling.
1: Wow, that there's a reason to visit right
5: there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, they, uh, you know, it's the longhouse faith. It's uh, extraordinary people, and, and they're here and have been here and uh, will be here. I mean,
1: your book is all about storytelling. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's all about telling the legends that happened here that were real. Yes. Right? What about Lou Gehrig?
5: Oh, the ashes of it. I, the story I wrote about Lou Gehrig is that uh, I was, uh, and this was my first book, but I was at the Hall of Fame one day going through the library. and by up
1: until By minutes. the way, speaking about the Hall of Fame in yes. Cooperstown, I have a few things to say about that. And it happens to me every time I go. and and there's a great hotel there the Otisaga absolutely oh my god reminiscent of this place very much so yes very much so and but that's and I love that hotel and you have the lake there and it's great but here's my issue with Cooperstown every five feet I'm in a store buying another baseball bat
2: oh yeah I know.
1: (laughs) come on and but the best sign I ever saw was in a storefront window of Cooperstown and it was so true and it said we have all the baseball cards your mother threw away. Oh, <laughs> my mother threw out. I had a huge... Oh, I had Orlando Cepeda. I had I had all these cards, and my Mays. mother went in my cla- right. My mother went in my Stan Musial, Willie Mays, Mickey <laughs> Mantle. My mother went, my went in my closet. Let's throw this out. I, I came. Out. You what? My mother
5: told me this is God's honest truth that we should get rid of them because of um, spontaneous combustion. That my baseball cards were going to burst into flame. No, no, no! That- you
1: burst into flame when you threw them out. <laughs> that's a true story, man. <laughs> I'm, and and I remember what well, I remember I, baseball cards before they put the bubble gum in, and it was the worst bubble gum, wasn't it? It was the worst bubble
5: gum. But you had to have it. You yeah, had to have it. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. that like, flat piece of gum. Yeah. yeah so my two sentence summary of the story I wrote about Lou Gehrig is that Lou Gehrig's widow was so freaked out by all the people who went to his grave at uh, Downstate. That uh, she wanted to move his ashes to the Hall of Fame and have them behind his plaque. And it actually reached, I mean, it, it went quite a ways along to the point where the hall talked about becoming a mausoleum for the immortals. And then it all fell apart. But that actually was in process and almost happened. And where are his ashes today? They're, that's that's a great story. They are supposedly still in his tomb down state, but, but the... Uh, the keepers of that site, there was an attempt to steal his ashes. Of course. And they never, wa- they never wanted to find out. It, it almost didn't seem, uh, didn't seem uh, important. Appro- yeah, yeah, exactly, or appropriate. I yeah. mean, he's there, right? He's there.
1: He's somewhere. He's there. He's yeah. somewhere. Yeah, and his spirit's certainly there. Yeah. In researching all the stuff that you've done about central New York, yes. what's the one story that encapsulates, if it, if it does, right, the spirit of this region?
5: Well, I, you know, I'm a storyteller, and uh, and uh, so I could I could take off in a whole bunch of these. The story that the story is sort of at the core of my new book, is uh, a story about Eric Carle, children's author, uh, um, Hungry, Hungry Caterpillar. He's a, he's an immigrant child in this city. He meets a little girl when he's uh, three years old. They have a photograph taken together. They're both in this immigrant neighborhood that is now full of refugees, Burmese refugees today. And they split up his children in 1932, before Babe Ruth calls his shot, Hoover is president. And 83 years later, Eric finds that picture, wonders whatever happened to that girl, writes a children's book about it, and we found her. And, and, and it's just this, and she was sharp, she is sharp. Florence Travado of Florida. And, and it, uh something about the resilience of working people and, and uh, the way that, that uh, art comes from struggle. And and the factory existence, there is something beautiful and circular in that story that I that I absolutely love. Now you're a factory kid. I am. Tell me about that. Well, my dad worked on a uh, coal pile at the uh, Niagara Mohawk Station in Dunkirk on Lake Erie. He had uh, frostbite
1: in his casket. You saw. And this, it. And we're talking when Lake Erie was working that.
5: Oh yeah, yeah, it was. And, and you know, so so in the wintertime, You'd have to uh, break apart the coal because you know you got to have power so, so he'd be out in the coal pile for you know 16 20 hour shifts and uh, that's who he was but he was also a guy who read constantly as was, as was my mother and so so I grew up kind of with this feeling of, of romance intertwined with factory life which is why I'm here. And you also grew up watching the factories go away. Oh my god I would, yeah absolutely my, I had a brother who had three factories go out under his feet. Wow. Yeah.
1: Now, this hotel? Yes. Such history here.
5: John and Yoko wrote a song, Attica State, in a room in this hotel. They, there was a almost Beatle reunion in this hotel. John and Ringo were here. The story was in 1971, Yoko did a museum show at the Everson. Yeah, I know about that, yeah. Yeah, and the story was that Apple tried to reunite the Beatles, that it almost happened, but it didn't. But uh, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg was here. Phil Spector. And uh, JFK stayed here, had a wonderful news conference where somebody put up their hand and asked him, uh, Jackie was pregnant with John John, and somebody put up their hand and asked him if he cared if it was a boy or a girl. And he says, this may sound treasonous, but I could care less. Just wanted a a healthy baby. But uh, they greeted him here like the Beatles. But everybody stayed here. There were five or six presidents who stayed here. This was always the place when you came to Syracuse that people stayed.
1: It was the only place.
5: Yeah, there was a couple other hotels. Yeah, hotel but, this, and, but this is the big one. This was the big one. Yeah, George Post, the guy, the, the firm that designed it, designed, uh, you know, they're great architects, did great buildings all
1: over the country. And the stories that are told in this hotel, not just who stayed here, what was written here? What was, what was... In, in terms of the story of lives? Yeah. And
5: everyone, the beauty of this hotel, the reason it was so significant when they brought it back is that everyone, I I did a piece when I worked on the Post Standard where I asked for memories, and I would get notes from women who worked in the laundry in the basement, who never went up to the lobby.
3: Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty
4: in the middle. How do I want anything with a mind of its own?
0: bobbing
1: about between my legs Sean there's so many characters it's all about, you're writing really about characters absolutely who's your favorite quirkiest Syracuse character
5: There was a guy named Dennis. Um, He died of pancreatic cancer about nine years ago. He uh, wore a toupee, he had a huge thick beard, lived out in Camillus, one of the suburbs, rode his bike downtown every day, and was always had to be in the front row at any event. Um, He wore big black sunglasses. People who didn't know him were frightened by him. (laughs) But but the story I loved is, is he just spent his life going to events. He would go to classical music events at the university and he learned how to applaud correctly, but but when you, it, this is why this book mattered so much to me, Peter, because he should be remembered because everyone knew him and everyone saw him and he was such a part of the fabric, and then he was gone, and and you know and now I,
1: but who told the story? Did
5: you tell the story? I had to tell the story. Yeah, and you were saying about Syracuse. When my wife and I came here in '91, we were transient. We'd lived in four or five cities. And and doubted we you know you know we never really dug our feet in any place and this place just claimed us I mean well you know
1: you mentioned ninety one my relationship with Syracuse goes to nineteen eighty eight and that was Pan Am 103. Oh. December twenty first nineteen eighty eight yes I covered that story and didn't know initially about the Syracuse connection and then were, of course we all knew were you in Lockerbie. I was there the next day. I was actually heading to London when it happened, uh, quite by coincidence, and ended up covering the story out there in Scotland, and stayed with that story for 25 years, uh, I mean, I'm still on the story, but 25 years later in 2013, I did a, a complete look back for CBS News, and went back to Lockerbie, uh, because the story's still not solved. No. The case is still not over. And,
5: and there's still disagreement about, about which way it's going. And uh... Oh yeah. But
1: Syracuse connection, of course, all those kids on the plane.
5: can I tell you a quick two-minute
1: story Yeah, sure.
5: Um, so I go over there and I go over there in '98 and I met a farmer named Richard Temple who was up on the Tundergarth the, uh, you know that's the,
1: where the, the cockpit came
5: in yeah and and uh, on the and night, there's still
1: a little memorial building there
5: yes, beautiful building Unbelievable. And, yeah the, the power of that town yeah. But on the night it came down as, as he, he said the folk, came down in his fields among his livestock. You know, 11 or 12 people fell on his land. And that for a couple of weeks, he had to continue working working his farm. Because of evidence, they didn't move him. So his mother would go out every day and say a prayer. But showed me a spot on top of this mountain. A photographer named Dennis Net he showed us a spot on top of the mountain where, where he found two girls who, as he said, looked like they were sleeping. And someone would go up there and and make a cairn a, a little monument and he never saw him but he would take care of this cairn and he'd done this for 10 years and and one of the girls was named julianne kelly so so years later i'm talking to a woman named elizabeth phillips whose daughter sarah was on the plane and and there had been a race in her honor and i said do you ever get the Lockerbie?" and she says peter honest to god i get the chills telling you this she says to me yeah we go over there there is a uh, my daughter fell with her best friend that we walk up a mountain and we take care of a monument on top of it.
1: Wow. And you know, when we did the, uh, the 25th anniversary, I came up to Syracuse and went to the university because they have a, they have a monument there. Uh, but they also have an archive yeah, in the library, great. which is unbelievable. unbelievable. I could spend hours and hours in there because those are the stories that still need to be told.
5: Oh, yeah, there's a box, you know, there's boxes of stuff that came off the plane, and and you feel those kids, I mean, their lives.
1: And here we are, you know, 20, excuse me, 27 years later. um, uh, When you think about it, it's still an open-ended murder case. Right. It has not yet been solved. The two Libyans who they arrested had not as much to do with it as you might think. Uh, There are a lot of other people involved. And uh, and the Scots aren't giving up. They're still they're still pursuing this.
5: Oh, and the, the way that town embraced people going back, and, and what that town saw the next day, and what they overcame. Oh my uh, God. God!
1: I mean, this is a town where nobody locked their doors. No, everybody knew everybody else. Um, it, it was a very small town. The constable had picked his had picked Lockerbie for his last assignment before retiring. Harvey Thompson. Because uh, nothing ever happened there right And then all of a sudden that night, uh, you know right after about 6:37 o'clock at night when that 747 fell into the town, it changed everybody forever
5: yeah. and anybody who touches it, it changes them. yeah absolutely
1: and and for those people listening to the show, I'm not trying to be maudlin and I'm not asking you to be tourists. I'm asking you to get involved if, if you go to Scotland, if you get a chance, go there. Just to, there's a little memorial building it's right. the size of a shack and you, you, somebody has to point it out to you they, they don't they don't mark it well but if you find it walk in because where you're standing is only about eighty yards away from where the cockpit fell right and there's a, a book of memorial <sighs> there's a memorial book there and there are pictures in there and have that moment have that moment
5: I remember the town manager in Lockerbie I guess that I, I call it the town manager the equivalent of I remember him saying to me one time that after that, whenever they saw a disaster, they count by ones. I thought that was such a beautiful thought.
2: Hello, Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no
0: cause for alarm.
1: Peter Grimmer here with you from Syracuse, New York. In fact, the old Hotel Syracuse, which has now been completely restored, renovated, refurbished, but not redesigned in that respect. It's been preserved in an amazing $76 million attempt by my next guest, Mr. Ed Riley, who's a local boy.
6: Good afternoon. Welcome to Syracuse. Thank you,
1: sir. Um, I guess the the question I have for you is you, you grew up here this hotel was goes back to what 1924
6: 1924
1: yes so when you were a kid running around Syracuse that was it the tallest building then
6: no um actually right up the street the state tower building was built a couple years after this and if you want to see a study in different architecture you can just look at that very quickly because that's modeled after the empire state building this obviously being much more of the old classic greek revival type of design Right, but it's it's a building you grew up with. It, it, was, the, it was always been, uh, you know, in this community since it was opened in 1924, the preeminent show-off palace in town. And I mean,
1: people got married here. The proms yeah. were here. The balls were here.
6: Absolutely. Um,
1: Some of the big bands came in and played?
6: They had actually big band shows that were uh, on the radio across the country. I've gotten letters from as far as away as the West Coast in Portland saying we used to listen to the big band sounds from the Persian Terrace at the lovely Hotel Syracuse in Syracuse, New York.
1: It was called the Persian Terrace?
6: The Persian Terrace. It was originally the Terrace Room when it first opened, and then in the 1930s, it was converted to the Persian Terrace and had a very sort of brightly colored mural painted on three of the walls.
1: Wow. those murals are still around
6: they're still there they're on the they're on the underside of the uh, paint we actually restored this to how it looked in 1924 so if you came in here in 1924 this is what you saw
1: now you had to restore it and still keeping with fire codes you had to restore it still keeping with materials
6: yep all the way down through including like windows that you see that have been replaced were actually sent out and duplicated to look exactly the way that the ones that were installed in 1924
1: were so if i'm a typical developer I have to look at the saying, why would you spend all that? I have to ask you, why would you spend all that money? Because are you ever going to see that money come back?
6: Well, I think the, the biggest thing is is this is an example of what happens when you meld um, different types of grants with tax credits, with private financing, and you get the basis in this down to a reasonable level so you can preserve the building and you can share it for the next generations.
1: And it becomes a showpiece of
6: the community again. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's been received great. We're busy as heck, and um, the community has really embraced the project I'll, almost since day one when we announced that the project was going to get underway.
1: What was your biggest design challenge when you started peeling back the wall? paper and lifting up the carpets i mean what did you, first of all what did you discover that you weren't expecting cuz oh. you had to see something there
6: oh uh, we had a lot of we had a lot of interesting discoveries probably the biggest discovery is the mural that you see at the over the front desk there was actually a mirrored wall in front of that We didn't know what kind of shape it was in. We didn't know if they had taken it down or not. Um, It's all painted on wood panels and then has soft joints between them. But when we took the wall down, it was in great shape. I mean, the biggest single stain that we had to get off of it, uh, believe it or not, was tobacco stain. From all those years of smoking in the lobby? A lot of people with cigars back in those days smoking, and they put a lot of smoke in the air. All right,
1: but then when you lifted up the carpet, did you find tiles that you weren't expecting?
6: Not so much, uh, you know, as far as the carpets were concerned. The whole lobby itself was covered with a small uh, layer of concrete that they'd put down and put the carpet over that. So when we took up the, con- the carpet and then got, got the concrete off, we were surprised to find out that they hadn't even cleaned the terrazzo floors before they poured over them. So the stuff just peeled up like pancakes, and the floor was in great shape. We hardly had to do any repolishing of it. Wow. Very cool. Very lucky. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, no kidding. And then you
6: had fire
1: code issues mm-hmm. because you have to make sure you're up to speed?
6: This, uh, this building right now is 100% compliant for both ADA and fire codes and life safety, and that's probably the single biggest challenge when you do something like well, this. Well, ADA especially. Absolutely. They uh, had very small rooms. As I said, the uh, guest rooms in this uh, building, when it was originally built, if you're an NBA basketball player, you could lay in bed and change the channel on the TV with your toes and not get up. <laughs> so it's pretty easy.
1: But OK, I've seen some of the older hotels where you, where you have that kind of a footprint.
6: Yep. You really can't change it all. We changed the rooms. One of the things we negotiated with SHPO and the Interior Department on the historic aspect was, we're a hotel and we need to survive as a hotel. Otherwise, they'll just get in problems again. So they allowed us to go from the corridor walls to the outside walls of the building, gut what was there and put the new guest rooms in. What we did also though is at the- Could you
1: you increase the size of the bathrooms?
6: We definitely increased the size (laughs) of the bathrooms. They were a little small, (laughs) yes, absolutely. Um, and they were original to 1924. They hadn't been renovated in about 90 years. So we're talking new plumbing. All new plumbing, all new mechanical, all all new electrical, all new life safety within a 90-year-old box.
1: And new water heaters, yay!
6: <laughs> yes, we, we actually, you can turn the water on and not wait a half hour, you get hot water right away. It's another whole concept that came up.
1: When you took this over, I mean, I know some of the hotels that they've done like this around the country. There were people who were full-time residents here.
6: We had a couple full-time residents when it closed. Actually, the hotel was closed for about 10 years before I purchased the hotel. So um, when it finally went dark and it went into bankruptcy, there was two permanent residents that they had to relocate, uh, a 93-year-old woman and then a younger attorney that was here, I think he was in his 50s.
1: Right, but then that was it, and the clo- hotel was closed? It was
6: closed, and it was a, a little surreal to a certain degree because if you weren't working that day, they just walked everybody, locked the doors. And that was it. And it turned that, out the lights. And that was it, and if your personal stuff was still on your desk, it was still there 10 years later. Really? Yeah, it was like walking back in time, uh, very much. It was It was sad, actually, to see sweaters on desk chairs and you know their personal things, shoes, things like that. Well, of course,
1: you know what that means. It's haunted.
4: We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor?
6: Howard Radio, clearance over. That's clearance over. Over. Roger.
1: Huh? If you want to learn about history in central New York, my next guest knows a little bit about that uh, because he can track the whole history of Syracuse from the the Onondaga Indians all the way through to the Erie Canal to something called the Bruseum, which I'm interested in because, uh, well... We actually did our show not too long ago from Utica, New York, and we understand what breweries are doing over there too. Absolutely, right? Utica Club, I know, right? Right. Our, our guest is uh, is Greg Tripoli, who's the uh, who is the executive director of the Onondaga Historical Association. Right. So you heard my introduction. I mean, people don't realize how far back this history goes.
3: Yeah, the history. Well, I mean, begins with our Native American history and actually the Native American history here is really fascinating because and it's rich this was the home of the Haudenosaunee also known as the Iroquois Confederacy and the Onondaga territory the Onondaga Nation is the center the central fire the executive branch if you will of that Confederacy and so here right on the shores of our little Onondaga Lake is where the birthplace of, uh, of democracy in the Western Hemisphere began
1: and people think it was the, Con- the Continental Congress.
3: Uh-uh. <laughs> no. It was, uh, it was uh, uh, the coming together of five warring nations into a confederacy that really became one of the most uh, formidable entities on the continent prior to European arrival. Commercially, too. Oh, yeah, no question. I mean, this was, uh, this was a major influence, and it was uh, really the beginning of, of um, you know one out of many. Uh, it, it was a matrilineal society. Uh, so it was also a major influence on the people who started the women's rights movement in central New York. And there was also one other little thing that started there on the shores of Onondaga Lake when the peacemaker brought all of these warring nations together. He said that the creator is not really interested in war. But if you really want to please the creator, you play this game called the Uh Translated, that means they bump pips And we know that game today as lacrosse, one of the fastest growing sports in the world. So basically, we owe world peace to lacrosse? Uh, You know, we owe world peace, I think, (laughs) to a lot of sports, right? Isn't that what the Olympics are all about? (laughs) All
1: depends on where they're played and when
3: they're played. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know that. What about the
1: Bruseum? Because, um, you know, that's latter day. I mean, that's, but there is a whole history
3: of brewing. Well, the Bruseum is really literally about the history of brewing in central New York. So, uh, and we have a long history of that. You know, um, in in, uh, prior to Prohibition, central new york was the largest distributor of hops in the country uh we have a climate and uh, and ground and that uh, that that is uh, perfect for growing hops and but so what happened i had a lot of german uh, pest yeah uh yeah wiped it out we have a lot of german and, and irish immigrants and you know germans irish uh they like their beer and we like their beer so
1: how many different craft breweries are there out there now
3: oh my gosh i, I really you know i've lost track but we're starting a new one or we're working with a group to start a new one and so Part of what uh, OHA does uh, is um, is use our historic perspective to contribute to the economic development in our community. We draw from our collections and from our history to, uh, to add to that. And so we're working with a partner to create a new brewery, uh, a German-style restaurant, a big tasting room where people can buy and taste uh, New York State products. And then um, we're also going to brew some, uh, some beers that we own the recipes to in our collection uh, that were pre-prohibition beers, very, very popular. And you bring them back yeah absolutely uh based on the original recipe we we own the logos of all the old uh, uh, uh breweries and their slogans and so uh we produce a whole oh, that, line of oh, t-shirts this, oh my with god that. that's great yeah they're amazing uh visually they're beautiful my great discovery
1: when we did the when we did the show from from utica was guess what the brewery that does utica club also makes great root beer
3: yeah saranac yeah and, and, and we own some of the we own some of the, uh, the recipes for some of the sodas that were made now a, we're at talking, that time, now, too. Okay, now
1: I'm coming back for that.
3: Oh, really? Okay. But going
1: back to the lake, I mean, so much of that history is storytelling.
3: Yeah, no question about it. You know, uh, we're, we are storytellers, and we, we, we love a great story. Uh, going back to the lake, you know, we're talking about the lake, uh, the shoreline after uh, Native Americans, after they were pushed away from it by George Washington during the American Revolution— um, was, uh, was the site, uh, there are salt springs, it's a freshwater lake, but there are salt springs around, uh, around the edge in the marshes, uh, and um, and it was, it was the source of over 80% of the country's supply of salt at a time when, you know, that was probably our most important commodity in the world, white gold, uh, and, uh, and that was one of the reasons why they built the Erie Canal, because they needed to be able to transport that salt. And because nobody wanted to pay for the Erie Canal, because they all thought it was a crazy idea, it was a tax, a self-imposed tax on the salt industry that paid for the Erie Canal. Um, you know when you're talking about the Civil War, for example, uh, think about it how, how 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 much salt they needed uh, uh, We literally cut off the supply of salt to the south and so uh, the salt from Onondaga Lake uh, not only helped build a city and one of the greatest engineering feats and made New York City one of the greatest ports in the country, uh, it also was a major advantage to the north in mm-hmm. the civil war and My response to that is who knew yeah right right I mean yeah, well, you know. Today we buy a little thing of salt and the grocery store lasts us all year, season, but, but back then you needed it you know, to, to tan hides to make leather, you needed it to preserve your food, you needed it to, um, you know, animals needed salt. They, they, they provided all of the work that motors do now. Um, this is one tiny little lake in the middle of nowhere that provided you know, th- this kind of um, national level um, service.
2: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
1: always been fascinated not just by the history but by the engineering of the erie canal um when you go back to when they started it you know the first question i was like how did they know or you know how did they figure it out what they did and it still exists today and if you want to know history you come to see our next guest because she's the curator of collections and exhibitions at the ecm otherwise known as the erie canal museum and her name is ashley Moretti. how are you I'm doing just fine. How are you? Good. I mean, you heard my introduction. I mean, I am always fascinated with how they make, first of all, how they built it and then how they got it to work.
2: You know, it was a lot of innovation. Uh, Sometimes the Erie Canal is referred to as America's first school of engineering. These guys didn't know what they were doing. It was pick up a shovel and get to work. You know, a a lot of the canal engineers, as they were to become, went over to Europe and studied how the canals were made and run over there and then brought the ideas back. But there was a lot of homegrown American innovation going on as well.
1: And success by, well, trial by error. <laughs> Basically, yes. I mean, how many times did they collapse the walls of that? You know, you, you would think they did because they didn't know.
2: That's right. Actually, a new type of hydraulic cement was developed uh, not too far away from here to help, help solve that problem. I mean, this, this was a problem that had never existed before and had to be solved.
1: And, of course, once they figured it out, it became the model for other canals. Right. But it was a working canal. People forget that they didn't just do it because they thought it would be a cool thing to do. It really had to support the community.
2: It did. You know, honestly, the Erie Canal made New York. It, it's why New York is the empire state today. This was a path across the state from the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. This was commerce. This was travel. This was culture. You know, I mean, New York was very much a backwater until you, the time of the Erie Canal. You know, you
1: just said that. It really built New York. My favorite quote from Dwight Eisenhower said, we didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. There you go. Same, <laughs> same principle.
2: Yes. How
1: big was the Erie Canal from start to finish?
2: Well, the original canal, which was started in 1817, so now in the year 2017, we're, we're at the beginning of the canal's bicentennial year. Uh, at the beginning, uh, that first canal that was built from 1817 to 1825 was uh, 363 miles.
1: Wow. I had no idea.
2: Dug by hand.
1: <laughs> All of it? All of it. And how, lo- and how long is it today?
2: Today what exists is is sort of the third iteration of the canal, you know, from the original or or Clinton's ditch as it was colloquially colloquially known. um, Between the 1830s and the 1870s there was an enlargement undertaken which took the original canal from 40 feet wide and 4 feet deep to 70 feet wide and and 7 feet deep. That was a major enlargement. That iteration of the canal was closed at the beginning of the 20th century, and what we have today is the New York State Barge Canal. And why did they close it? you know the automobile was king at that time a lot of people come to our museum which you know is in downtown syracuse and it is on what used to be the canal and they say well where's the canal what happened to yeah, the and canal? you're standing on it basically yes <laughs> yeah our our museum is in the last remaining waylock building there were seven of these along the original canal uh, or along the, along the enlarged canal and basically what they did was they they weighed the canals in, in order to de- canal boats in order to determine tolls charged and there were there were seven of them in total. Syracuse is the last remaining one. And when the canal was paved over here in Syracuse um, in, in the early part of the 20th century. It's
1: better you said I hate to hear that when the canal was paved <laughs> over.
2: I can't tell you how many visitors I've talked to that are nostalgic for the canal. I wish we still had the canal. What you got to remember at the time is that the automobile was becoming king. People didn't want the canal anymore. People wanted cars. You know, the canal was dirty. The canal was smelly. The canal was uh, a symbol of a, of, of a time that was passed at that time, and you know now we have this museum that is probably the only maritime museum without water.
1: <laughs> However, are there still parts of the canal that are working?
2: Yes, yeah, the New York State Barge Canal, which um, actually they'll be celebrating their centennial in 2018, it officially opened in 1918. That is over 500 miles of canal that still crosses the state. It doesn't, doesn't cross through Syracuse anymore. Unfortunately, according to some of my visitors, but uh, it does make use of some of the more natural bodies of water, like the Finger Lakes that are within the state. But you can still get across from the Atlantic I, it, to the Great Lakes. It's
1: still navigable.
2: Yes. Oh, yes. Very popular. It runs from May to November every year. Thousands of people travel on it. It's a great deal of fun. You know, you can, you can pick up a canal boat from a number of sites across the state and just go on a little trip.
1: But if you really want to know the whole history, you come right here to Syracuse, stand over what used to be the canal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was paved over and visit the Erie Canal Museum.
2: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
1: Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com.
0: If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx you know.
1: Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset. Cinderella, Bracket Buster, Sleeper. We've got it all covered. Every round, reaction shows all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Ion College Basketball Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.